Welcome, everyone, to the latest edition or episode of the Nerd Out Security Podcast, where security experts come together to discuss the latest security issues facing individuals and corporations. Um, read corporations, businesses, organizations, however you want to say it. Um, I never, we've been doing this now for a year and a half, and I don't think I've gotten through that first line without bumping up a little bit at all. So it's just a continuation of the status quo for me because I'm David Pounder, your humble host. And I'm joined today by a great panel, uh, some of which you may know, and we have a newcomer to the podcast. So let's welcome them all in. Uh, today's panel includes Joe Levy, Bridget Johnson, and our newcomer is Amanda Mason. So welcome. Uh, Bridget, Joe, it's been a couple episodes since we last had you. And, and Amanda, we want to welcome you in uh, onto the panel today. So by way of introductions, let's just take a quick minute and, and remind everyone who you are or introduce yourselves and and what kind of makes you security nerds? So let's uh, let's go with Joe. Joe, you want to start first? Uh, sure. Um, thanks. Uh, it's good to be back, and uh, as always, joining uh, Bridget and yourself. And I'm really happy to to uh, talk with Amanda today. Uh, so I am the uh, chair of the Venue and Safety Security Committee for the International Association of Venue Managers, and we're a, a membership organization worldwide, uh, over seven thousand members, representing all types of public assembly venues from stadiums. Performing arts centers, convention centers, racetracks, uh, performing arts centers. I may have said that twice, but they have a special place in my heart. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, uh, we, uh, our duty of care, of course, for all the visitors, audience, athletes, artists, et cetera, that uh, frequent our uh, venues. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, welcome, Joe. It's glad to have you on again. Uh, Bridget. So it's good to be back. Um, I am managing editor for Homeland Security today. I'm also a terrorism analyst and do law enforcement training um, and a security consultant. Wonderful. Thank you for being too, uh, too kind to your expertise, but we'll get into all of those details soon. Um, and Amanda, welcome aboard and uh, please tell us a little about yourself. Oh gosh, wow. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thanks for having me. So glad I could join. Uh, my name is uh, Amanda Mason. I am the Vice President of Intelligence at Related Companies, uh, private sector, privately held real estate company uh, nationwide. I think kind of like Joe, we've got our hand in a little bit of everything from uh, sporting venues to hotels, gyms, and of course, our, uh, our big developments too. Well, uh, yeah, that's great. I mean, it's really you, you bring a little bit more sophistication to the group today then. <laughs> so we, we really, you can, you can help rein us in. And, and you actually have some very unique um, background and, and job history here that we're going to dig into a little bit um, with the topics we've got on today. And I think I'm going to just label this episode reports galore because I think over the last couple uh, I guess the last month, we've had a series of high-level reports published uh, that has served as they, they can serve for analysis for decision makers. They also serve as lesson learn, le lessons learned for uh, organizations about a variety of incidents that have occurred and, and many of which are very well known. Uh, but let's just start with going down and give you a brief recap of each. Specifically, we have the first report from the FBI. It's the Active Shooter Incidents 20-Year Review 2000-2019. And if you're not familiar with it, it identified and analyzed over 300 active shooter incidents, specifically 333, interestingly enough, between 2000 and 2019. Um, that was followed a week later by the U.S. Senate's uh, report on the January 6th incident titled Examining the U.S. Capitol Attack, a Review of the Security Planning and Response Failures of January 6th, uh, which effectively served as an action act, uh, after action review of the incident. And then finally, late last week, we had the first of three, well, what is expected to be three reports published by the uh, public inquiry in the uh, in England related to the 2017 Manchester Arena bombing, uh, the uh, Ariana Grande um, concert, uh, in which it effectively uh, leveled criticisms at all security apparatuses and, and organizations involved in the event. So, pretty interesting and very pointed comments coming out of all three reports. 
So I know that, you know, I gave you all this uh, homework to do and look over those reports if you're not already doing those. Some of them are quite extensive. I think the Manchester one was upwards of 240 some odd pages. So let's just start in general for the group. Uh, we'll go again, Joe, Bridget, and, and Amanda. What can organizations take away from these type of reports, regardless of, of whether or not the re recommendations were directed? Because, you know, the U.S. Senate report went into, you know, some of the um, issues surrounding U.S. Capitol Police, the DOD, DOJ, you know, it didn't talk to specific, you know, private sector uh, institutions, but there are still lessons learned probably that can be made out of some of these. So, Joe, what, what do you, when you see these type of reports, what, what can you pull away from there? Or what do you try to focus in on? Um, you know, it's so interesting because reports usually follow most things. And it's, it's, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback a lot of these events. And I try to resist that. Uh, or getting sucked into it because it's also hard to cut through the politics of the reports, even when they label themselves as bipartisan or you know independent inquiries. Um, you can still find some type of common thread throughout. Um, when you when you try to coordinate a, a, an event, a seer event, you know, a major, a Super Bowl, or even down to just a local convention at your at, at, you know conference at your convention center, there are, there are thousands of people that you have to coordinate and. It, to, to expect that afterward, a report is going to basically identify and solve for all of the communication breakdowns, it's just not possible. And then you have personalities at play, you have different experience uh, of, your, uh, of your security force, your frontline uh, staff, your executive leadership. There, there are people who are um, good at what they do uh, and bad at what they do, passionate about what they do, showing up for a paycheck. And you put all of these together and you're going to have uh, communication and intelligence breakdown. So uh, when I read these reports, uh, a lot of them are dense. And like you said, over 200 pages, um, it's, it's, it's hard to get to the, the root of what, uh, what specifically went wrong because they're identifying things that went wrong, but there's a catalyst, there's that first step. And I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's as simple as reading the report and then knowing how to fix it. Because if you talk to your security experts, uh, before events happen, like these catastrophic events, they'll tell you where they need funding. They'll tell you where they need training. They'll tell you where their weak spots are. And we, we tend to not fund those things. Um, you know, the, the larger facilities, the major stadiums, they tend to have more money than the mid cap or the small cap venues, shopping malls, grocery stores, uh, religious institutions, et cetera. So I, I read them and certainly there's a lot of information in there that you can take and build on. But we know a lot of these things before they happen. We know that a lot of our security forces are t-shirt securities or square badges, and they don't have law enforcement training, et cetera. And there's a difference between law enforcement and event security. So they're, they're two important roles. One can't substitute for the other. So um, I've glanced, I've not read the whole thing, but I, my takeaway is yes, there was absolutely a communication breakdown. Um, and that led to the fact that we're highly politicized in this country and it's easy to sort of co-op someone else's message. It's easy to fire up a base. And if you want to, if you want to whip some people up into action, I mean, look at this, the, the, the capital was overrun. I mean, you would think that that would never happen. And if it could happen there, then of course it can happen anywhere. And reading the report, uh, I don't think stops it from happening again. I think what stops it from happening again is, um, listening to uh, the, the experts before um, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the event happens so that we can actually try to fortify or plug up some of these holes or harden some of our um, obvious things. You know, in New York after 9-11, we realized that um, the, all of the emergency response, they weren't talking on the same radios, like no systems worked together. That was one of the biggest outcomes. So when we had a, a citywide response, they were disparate, they were not connected in a way that they are, I believe now. Um, but I think we knew that before. Uh, we just didn't think that uh, it was either important enough or we could fund it uh, because how expensive it was. Of course, something catastrophic happened and then we, we did find the money. So this is a reoccurring event for me. Uh, a lot of our venues have this problem. Uh, when something happens, then we fund the solution. And that it's a little heartbreaking that we have to go through such um, pain uh, before we try to you know, fix those holes that we're aware of. 
Well, that you just, I'm going to pack up my bag now. <laughs> you you so put a damper on everything here. Oh, great. We don't, there's no hope. <laughs> no. And I refuse to believe anything in this country is politicized, by the way. I mean, I think you're, <laughs> I don't see any of that. But, but, but Bridget, let, let's, um, Let's try to pull something positive from these type of reports. And I think Joe brings up a lot of really good points. And I'm not, I'm not here to, to uh, disparage Joe's comments because I think he does have a lot of great things in there is, is I, I think from a security perspective, we do see a lot of the gaps and vulnerabilities. And we hope that you know, we've put enough controls in place or redundancy in other areas that perhaps we can cover it um, for this incident or this event. Um, and I do think, so there's a lot of value in that comment. And then uh, miraculously, when all of a sudden the report is published, we, next time we need to ask for something, we generally get it, but maybe it comes at the risk of something else. So, so I, I, I see a lot of value in Joe's comments, but Bridget, I mean, from your perspective and, and you look at it also from, you know, you see a lot of these threat actors online and other venues um, where these are all publicly available reports. I mean, and we're highlighting our deficiencies in some of these areas. Um, is there benefit to having these so widely publicized? Um, do, do they get used against us in other platforms? And, and where can we really strengthen our, our resolve through, through these type of, this type of feedback, I guess? Well, I think where we can draw a lot of value from studies like this that are released um, in open source is that, you know, we're not just learning how to harden soft targets, but how the perpetrators can be detected in the planning process. Um, one of the, the things that these help do, and, and I'm going to look at kind of more at the FBI report on active shooters here, um, can, you know, get people to kind of rethink the way that we look at profiling. Now, this, this specific FBI report doesn't go into the same kind of uh, detail about shooters like last fall's Secret Service National Threat Ass Assessment Center um, report on mass attacks in public spaces. Uh, that one went a lot more into the demographics, the employment history, whether there was substance use, prior criminal charges, history of domestic violence, you know, all of these things that you know, beliefs and fixations, you know, online influence that, you know, is really going to um, stand out, you know, if, if somebody is in a workplace or if somebody is in a, you know, personal relationship or, you know, acquaintance um, with a person who, you know, is, is kind of building towards potential targeted violence or extremism, um, you'll, you'll see a lot of those, those patterns. But, you know, I, I think that, um, these are important, you know, to point out that, you know, profiling and, you know, there's a difference between mass profiling of a community, which is unconstitutional and counterproductive, and looking for potential extremists or persons prone to committing targeted violence who fit a profile. Um, you know, we, some, some years ago, you know, when a lot of people were just kind of concentrating on whether someone was devoted to Islam, you know, if they were to, to be able to tell if they were um, kind of prone to Islamic extremism. But then we saw a bunch of cases that, that really went against that. The, the, the attacker in Nice, France, um, you know, he was, you know, drinking booze, doing drugs, eating pork, you know, the uh, shooter in San Bernardino, he actually stopped going to mosque after marrying his radicalized wife. Um, so there were a lot of cases of that, that, that got us to realize that there are behavioral change patterns that we need to assess um, while not um, engaging in, in the, the kind of profiling that's not going to work. So in the FBI report, you know, we see um, different things such as, um, you know, 10 of the incidents involved multiple shooters, um, a lot more more than half of the shooters were either committed suicide or were killed during the operation. So, you know, what kind of, of, of suicidal frame of mind did they go into this with? Um, it, it assessed female shooters. 
you know, most of them were current or former employees. Um, one committed the shooting with her spouse at his place of employment. Um, we had a college student. We had one at an eviction hearing. Um, and um, 44 of the 333 incidents also involved shootings at two or more locations. So we know when, when we talk about extremists doing complex coordinated attacks, you know, we also have a, a cause to kind of pause and, and, you know, think about when people who are committing targeted violence are doing the same. So, you know, you'll only not only find that in these types of reports, but, you know, gaps, of course, are some places more vulnerable than we thought they would be. Um, they're also stressing that intelligence does no good if it doesn't end up in the right actionable hands. Um, the importance of information sharing from the Capitol incident and beyond. Um, and, you know, as cliche as it might sound, you know, really stressing the importance of breaking down if you see something, say something, for people to know actually what they're supposed to be seeing that should set off alarm bells that they can then be reporting on. Yeah, I, you kind of jumped ahead on a couple of questions that I was wanted to dig into when you talk about behavior analysis and, and how it really is distinguished from, um, you know, what, what most people would just kind of lump together as profiling. I think profiling gets a negative connotation because of some of the uh, previous associations with it. But when you look at you know, the, the FBI reports specifically, and you really, and, and you're absolutely right. I think the, the U.S. Secret Service report from last year, as well as some of the previous FBI reporting, um, when they broke down each individual year or, or two-year group, they really did get into, you know, some of the things that would cause active shooter type of things, such as you know, grievances or stressors and what, what some of those behaviors attributed themselves to, I really feel like that's a, that's a evolving area for security elements. And it's also a, a large gap because you, you hit that last point is, uh, you know, if you, you know, the, the DHS campaign of the, if you see something, say something is, I think it's really smart. It's clever. There's a lot of really good resources available online but does everyone really fully understand and appreciate that? And that can kind of go to some of the training gaps that we may have when, when you're talking about reporting suspicious indicators. So I, I think that's a really important element when we, when we look at these reports, because I, I know in the Manchester report, the thing about that is, is while the report was released just this last week, the inquiry was very um, public. And, and every couple of weeks, or at least once a month, you'd get some new, uh, what they would consider a bombshell drop in, in the news about, you know, this, this individual or entity knew, but didn't say anything, or there was a large gap that the, um, the threat actor, you know, was able to exploit just because by coincidence, and, and we're seeing all these things, some of which was touched on what Joe was saying, but um, I, I do think it's really uh, interesting to see how some of these things can can play out. So let, let's turn to Amanda here. And, and Amanda, you have some very, uh, as we were talking before we start recording, you know, you were you have some very close connection to the January 6th incident. So I'm curious, one, can you, you know, as much as you'd like to, uh, you know, can you explain a little bit about what that day was like? And then as you see, you know, the, whether it's this report or some of the news reports that have come out over the last, you know, six to eight, six, six months or so in the aftermath of it, what's your, you know, how do you sift through, you know, what the real lessons learned can be and how do you apply that to not only your role that you were positioned in during January 6th, but also your role, you know, in the private sector and, and working within the inner agencies and such. What, what, what do you think about that? Sure, that's definitely uh, quite a few questions, but uh, definitely happy to address <laughs> them. Them. So if I'm, <laughs> them one at a time, that. yeah, you've got a long time. <laughs> Let me know. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, for, for the group, so I'm also in the DC uh, Air National Guard. And so I was already mobilized um, doing some COVID mission sets. And as we came back from Christmas and New Year holiday break, 
uh, I was actually already mobilized sitting in the operations center uh, as we prepared for the 6th gen events. So I definitely have an interesting take on the before, the during, and the after. So definitely bear with me. I'm happy to uh, address any, any specifics of that. So the, the January 4th and 5th was fairly calm. I mean, there really was no indication that anything uh, that we saw was was going to happen. We were already in comms with uh, Metro PD, uh, with our other law enforcement entities within the district, and it was seemed like it was just going to be a big bunch of nothing. And you know, as we continued to you know work in the operations center, we just kind of sat still, uh, you know, drank our coffee, shot the breeze with one another, and just you know, it's it's rare to get all the the guard members sometimes together in that. Now, the morning of the 6th, uh, you know, we all kind of uh, congregate into the operations center and just sort of start going over what we think is going to happen during that day. So for those who don't know, we uh, DC Guard was already at uh, the metro stations. We were at different traffic control points and we had a quick reaction force um, that was over at Joint Base Andrews. And all that, all this is public information. Uh, there really isn't much uh, counter to what came out in the in the 6th Jan uh, congressional report there. But what was interesting, and I think we kind of see this trend in the other two reports that, that were referenced earlier, is that sort of impetus and, and friction point where you all of a sudden see a change in behavior. And that was a big one, right? So uh, the guard is very limited in what it can do to look at U.S. person's information. Uh, so it really has, a U.S. person has to really be a threat you know, as we've seen that, you know, in, in different shootings at military bases, uh, people trying to enter with the gates, right? You, it has to involve a military member at that scene. And so as we're, we were really relying upon our law enforcement brothers and sisters for information, which I think as we all look in the hindsight, there really wasn't much out there. And what was referenced was one potential report from the FBI that they had an indication that something was going to happen was going to happen and somewhere in the in the chain of events it didn't get passed to the right people to really start preparing for that day uh, we had basic um, security postures right you saw the bike racks around the capitol uh, we had from a dc guard perspective we just had minor gear because of the civil disturbances from the previous year we were really under a, a microscope with how we could be perceived so we really had no protective gear other than you know a helmet shin guards, the, the, the typical things in case we had to get, you know, down and dirty, but there was no civil disturbance gear. It was all very much orchestrated and carefully viewed. Um, so we're going into the morning, uh, afternoon, you know, uh, mid-morning, I think 11 o'clock is when the president came out and all the different speeches from, uh, from his team started to occur. And we really started to see just the bigger conglomeration of people. And I, I missed one key point that we had also noticed was the attire of many of the participants, right? You cannot miss guys and gals walking around with rifles. I mean, you see it in the district. Uh, it was broadcast over the different, you know, TVs, uh, CCTVs that are, that are around the district. And it was live streamed from social media. You could see what was perceived as suspicious behavior. And so within that MPD and other law enforcement, they definitely reacted quickly, but there was just too many in such a short amount of time. And then because of the political charge behind it, uh, not a lot of people were really confronted on that. So you have that one indicator, and then you have the speeches which really start to incite people. Uh, and then of course, you just start watching through live streaming TV and other cameras and social media of just people just running towards the Capitol. And at that point, when you're looking at, at those trends, I mean, this is probably 30 to 45 minutes ahead of time. As soon as you know, people were like, we're going to march down Pennsylvania Avenue. At that point, we all started to look at <laughs> what that end target, that end destination could be. And so that was, it was really hard, especially in our restricted uh, stance from a, from a domestic operation military standpoint. I'm just watching this unfold and not being able to do anything about it. Mm. So I'll, I'll, I'll sort of stop there with sort of what, yeah. what the day was like. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. You brought up a lot of great points there. I, I think it's really important to note, you know, you're and one thing I wanted to kind of touch on was this 
active monitoring that you know a lot of organizations and I've recommended that as well as is being active on social media on the day of an event to be able to get some of the tones and themes but it's really hard I think you brought up a really key point because you know the US there are certain elements within the US military and in government, you know, collection against U.S. persons is prohibited uh, unless it, it meets certain criteria. The organization may have the specific directed mission to do so. And, and so that's protected from a, a lot of, you know, incidents in the in the history of the United States that they decided to put the U.S., you know, I think it's executive order one, two, triple three, um, to make sure that you're not collecting and using information against U.S. persons. So you know, you can't, you know, for some organizations, it's important to understand the limitations that or, or the capabilities as well as the limitations that organizations have in what they're trying to do. So when we talk about active monitoring of an event, yes, you can see a lot of these things streaming and, and, and but there's also added context that's missing in some of this and what is real and what is bluster and what is some guy just wanting to act like a clown on, on social media for the, for follows or likes or, or things along those lines. So I think that was a really interesting point you brought up um, it, it, as well as part of that overall interagency coordination between all the enti entities involved. So it, as the day went along and you start getting a bigger sense of things um, with it, what's happening in and around there, what were there many changes that occurred as a result or or do you feel like there was uh still i mean I, it's hard to believe that uh, things were ever as bad as people want to say they are but at the same time as you you want to be able to to accurately represent what's happening so from your vantage point you know what what did you see escalating um really just sort of the the panic of the situation escalated both from a civilian standpoint as well as a, a military and law enforcement uh one of the key lessons learned i think when we look across all of these incidents is that one size does not fit all so at least from a dc point uh and the dod side we sort of had the posture based off of you know um what had happened the previous year during civil disturbances, right? We wanted to be very mindful, uh, take into account that, you know, hate perception goes, goes very far, especially in the district. And so we weren't armed. As the situation went on and you start to see the panic and, and because of the lack of preparation, uh, that really sort of led, you know, I think everybody sort of felt that, that gut-wrenching, you know, moment when you start to see rocks and the barriers being broken and the engagement with the crowds, with, with law enforcement, uh, where because there was no unified command, it just wasn't planned for. Uh, and so because of that panic, then you start to see the, the recession of the, of the security perimeters. Um, you hear the panic calls. Uh, part of that panic was not understanding policies and procedures. So I think if you look at the, the actual congressional report on, on 6 Jan as well, uh, the Capitol Police really weren't even aware of their own, let alone how to request guard uh, policies. So because of that, I think that also led to that, you know, that administrative panic. How are we going to respond? How do we work together? Uh, it wasn't a matter of nobody wanting to help each other, but because of those uh, different laws and legislation on how to how to interact with one another, how to work together, it just hadn't been practiced at such a scale prior to that. So I, I think that that really goes goes very far. So it was a, a lack of preparation, a lack of sharing of information, and a lack of really understanding the policies and procedures of your sister and brother organizations. And I think well, along with that, with the uh, information sharing, it just wasn't because we weren't aware of each other's priorities or concerns. Again, we were not postured, DC was not postured in a way to go ahead and, and help provide for that sort of crowd control uh, and security perimeter uh, response. Yeah, that's that's really great feedback. And you call out a lot of really great uh, points of that uh, January 6th um, uh, report. So Joe, you know, she touched on, Amanda just touched on, you know, the, the, the planning preparation and that interagency coordination you know, when with your venue management background and experience, you you mentioned it in your opening comments too. Is you know that's a that's a large uh, amount of um, 
you mentioned those those areas in there, especially that that coordination between agencies. You have so many people involved in these type of big events. What you know? What are some things that you like to do uh, in your you know whether you're recommending that or that stuff that when you're in charge of a, of a venue that you like to do to help break down some of those? Because look, some agencies don't like to play well with others. That's just a simple fact. Um, for, for a lot of different reasons. I'm not pointing any one particular agency out here um, because it applies to many. It is is what, what are some ways that you can kind of break down those walls? Um, well, in advance, what I love to do is, is to bring in all the local agencies as often as you can, invite them to your, your place of business, to your venues, give them a tour, encourage them to do active exercises, um, bring multiple agencies, do tabletops, bring them into your venue and sort of build that relationship. It, it, it goes a really long way. And then when any type I, anytime I design uh, any type of um, preparedness plan for a venue, I try to make it as simple as possible because as we all know, um, and I think Amanda touched on this too, is that uh, when things go bad, uh, uh, when they go wrong, they go wrong quickly. Um, and you go, you go from in a blink of an eye from crowd management to crowd control and you can lose control easily, especially when you have a, a, a great number of people and they're drawing in more from side streets, et cetera. So there's that fervor, that sort of that crush, that craze or mob mentality takes over quickly. Your plan has to be simple because it will fall apart based on how, um, uh, how well-trained your, your team is. And a lot of venues have um, uh, um, uh, high turnover. Uh, it's sort of a common occurrence and you can't guarantee that the person who's on shift is actually going to have a lot of training. And there's a difference between being trained well and being well-trained. And I think those things um, are, are weak spots in a lot of our plans. So whenever possible, every single event briefing, um, I try to always add some type of training nugget. Just try to keep it fresh, keep it interesting, keep people's attention, because the more you say it to them, and if you can vary the way you say it, um, you know, it's more likely to stick. And until uh, a lot of our team members have actually been through one of these occurrences, you don't know how they're gonna react. A lot of people have never heard a, a live gunshot. So you can train all you want for active shooter, but until you've heard that and you've had a little muscle memory around it, you may not, ex you, you may not predict how you're going to react. You, your, your training might kick in or may not, you may freeze. So uh, when you design your preparedness plan for any of these things, you, you have to sort of keep that in mind. Yeah, I mean, that's a, you, a great point at the end there is until you're actually trained for some of that or until you experience some, some of it is just, it, it really is life lessons and being part of that. And, and as much as possible, replicating those conditions. Um, and I would encourage, uh, two months ago, we did a, one of the Nerd Out episodes was with Rob Yandow and we were talking about that type of, um, you know, what happens when a, an event crisis occurs, what happens within the body that really starts um, either th that, that prevents, you know, that all that preparedness planning goes out the window because your body is no longer able to, to match that. So that's great points, Joe. I really appreciate you bringing that perspective. Um, Br Bridget, you know, when you look at these type of these incidents, um, and, and it could be active shooter type incidents, it could be extremist activity or, or global terrorism, there's usually a crackdown of some sort or, or a knee jerk response, you know, a quick knee jerk response to say, you know, you get on your soapbox and say, well, this will not happen again in, you know, in this area or whatnot. When you look across the landscape of, of the extremist movements within the United States and the, the larger global terrorist movements, um, are, we, are they beyond doing something like this again, like a, something like a large scale event? And, and really, are, are, are we really more concerned about these more smaller type of lone wolf active shooter slash active shooter type of incidents. It, I mean, is that the wrong message to take away from some of this or, or should we still be concerned about, you know, a complex coordinated terrorist attack that, that seeks to exploit some of what occurred in these incidents here and, and what they may, may observe or gain from these reports? 
Well, I mean, the, the, the reality is that there's the potential out there for all those types of attacks. One of the big reasons for that is the internet. You know, there's such an open source amount of terror tutorials, um, magazines, videos, how-tos, um, cyber tips, everything from all sorts of different groups and ideologies. And these, these are out there, not just for that specific ideology, you know, these, they're, they're basically, uh, you know, just like a farm of open source material for people to go to. Um, but I think that one of the, um, one of the important things that, that we can take away from studying past incidents is that there can't be a fear of or a hesitancy to basically look at the long game. And what, you know, I was kind of thinking of, you know, when I was reading the FBI report and then thinking back to the Secret Service report was that, um, you know, I know a couple of analysts who have kind of dug into the incel, the involuntary, involuntary celibate movement and, um, tried to analyze that and analyze, you know, why there were these, you know, bad incidents of targeted violence that, that were coming out of people who were, you know, professing to be incels and who were involved with a lot of these online message boards, et cetera. And, you know, automatically, you know, the, the couple of analysts I'm thinking of were, were striking, you know, a very sympathetic tone and saying, you know, these are, you know, guys who just, you know, can't get dated and, or feel that they can't or feel that they're, you know, unattractive to the opposite sex, but, you know, they shouldn't automatically be, be branded as violent. And they were basically looking at, you know, whether or not these guys in these boards were overtly talking about going out and committing acts of violence. Um, in some cases they were, but in some cases um, they were, airing grievances in a way that um, uh, basically put targets out there that, you know, were, were basically directed towards all women that they had perceived had shunned them or, um, you know, people who, pe other people in their life they thought hadn't cut them a fair break and then grouping those into certain, you know, buckets of people. And a, a grievance is one thing, but when you get into these forums, you get a cauldron of grievances. And we've seen that on places like 4chan and 8chan. You know, we, we saw um, these cauldrons get whipped up when, you know, the, the um, Christchurch mosque shootings happen, when the Pittsburgh Tree of Life synagogue shootings happen. You know, and these are people who were not strangers to these types of, of online cauldrons, basically. Um, we've seen a lot of the people who were connected to the Capitol insurrection, you know, had histories of, you know, being, you know, very involved with these, you know, grievance movements, you know, whether it's militia extremism, you know, white supremacists, et cetera. And so I think, you know, now, especially that, um, there's more of a focus being trained on, um, domestic extremism and, um, you know, some, some targeted violence that could fall outside of that purview. Um, we just, you know, have to understand how things are getting magnified online in terms of grievances and how people may act out on those grievances, even with peer pressure, with urging from others, et cetera, and what kind of resources they have at their fingertips online to be able to be inspired to whether it's something as complex as the Paris attacks or whether it is, you know, more along the lines of, you know, walking into the uh, Orlando nightclub and opening fire. So um, it's, 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 it's kind, of, kind of broad, you know, hoping that, that, that we, we do start to take this more long range purview, but, um, but that's, that's kind of where I'm thinking on that. Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, well, I, I, and to kind of add to your point there, I mean, the some of the long range views on it, look at the the San Jose shooting the, at the Valley uh, Transportation Authority um, in San Jose. I mean, that that was a guy who had a grievance for t up to 10 years. Um, and oh, yeah. he had, he had, he had um, indicators here and there. Some of them were that interagency 
weren't, you know, agencies weren't talking to each other or didn't think that it would go this level. And unfortunately, there was a, um, a, a terrible incident that occurred. So I, I mean, I definitely think there's a lot to it. There's, it's building a picture, it's building a puzzle of an individual. And that's that behavioral analysis that I'd love to dig into a little bit more as we go through. But Amanda, for this, uh, before we get into the rapid fire questions and, and such, I'll give you the last word on these reports here. And specifically, I'd be interested just in, in now that you've seen in the aftermath of, um, of January 6th and, and some of the stuff that has come out, what are you able to take away? I mean, kind of that first point, what, what, you know, you brought up a lot of great points earlier, but what are you able to now take away, not only to within your current role, um, but in other areas, other aspects that, that you'll be working on or, or you think that's important to call out? Uh, one of the first things that uh, really want, want to hit the mark on, and I saw this trend with, with all of those reports, is as Bridget said, you know, you see something, say something. Uh, it doesn't matter how, how small and minor, um, it's okay to sort of, you know, be nervous because I think specifically in the Manchester report, uh, one of the witnesses said he uh, didn't want to be perceived as being racist, uh, which is a very sensitive and, and hard thing to, to get to. But I think if you can back up the suspicious activity, uh, no matter the, the race, gender, ethnicity, uh, the suspicious activity, as well as, you know, maybe any patterns, I think is, is important to highlight, um, you know, everything from, you know, the, I think the hostile scanning of the area to what equipment somebody's carrying. If those things don't fit that scenario, that we really need to share that information. And I think within both the private sector as well as the, the public sector of being able to bridge the, those gaps, uh, I think uh, the, the more you're proactive, I like what Joe had to say as far as that proactivity with our local law enforcement not only our local PDs, but also with our DHS uh, regional representatives, our FBI uh, private sector uh, offices that, that are there in the various cities, that having that interaction sooner rather than later ahead of an incident and getting that information sharing. I mean, you know, we we and the private sector are very good about uh, and within our company. We're happy to share information uh, because we also want to be proactive and protect the citizens that, that are coming, you know, on and off our, our properties daily. The other key thing that I wanted to highlight earlier, too, is that missing that disinformation that comes out, out of media. I think that that's a, that's a big one. Other than some of the videos from the six January events, we totally shut down most of the actual media itself because we didn't, one, need to repeat what the media is already saying, and two, so that it didn't sway our judgment and our calls for, for that sort of support. Uh, and I think that's important to sort of understand which sources to bring in and which sources to shut out because as, as soon as you start crossing those lines and you've got bad information coming and going, your response plan is just going to go, it's just going to go out the door. You know, that's a really great point. And, and the, the shutting out or knowing what sources to really trust and, and verify and, and use is, is, I mean, that's such an underappreciated aspect. And, and yeah, I think it'll probably have to be a topic for another day because if you, you know, and look, listeners, if you've been listening to our podcast over the last year, you've, these are all the same themes that we keep repeating over and over. Why? Because they keep happening over and over and they keep occurring. And it's never too late to start the, this planning and preparedness. You're never too, it's never too late to make that first step and reach out to the local law enforcement or your local government officials, the fusion centers that exist in every major city or, or close proximity. You know, there's so many different elements to reach out to. And it starts with a phone call or an email and, and just a simple introduction. Uh, look, our panel did great. Uh, look, you guys nailed it on all aspects of, of this. Um, and I really appreciate your comments. Uh, we will have a lot of the reports referenced uh, that were brought up in the show notes. So uh, I encourage you to look there if you want to do some additional reading. But now let's switch over to wrap up the show with our rapid fire questions. Uh, and we'll go through a couple here. And some of them are 
are a little lighter than others, but some of them continue on some of the themes. I ask all of our uh, participants just uh, short responses um, and we'll get through these as well. So here we go. Fire balloons in Israel, effective tactic or nuisance? Uh, Joe. Yeah, I, I think they're both. I think they're doing what they plan to do. Um, they get over, they set hundreds of fires. It's a distraction. It, it's, it's scary. I think it, they do work. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Bridget. I mean, they're, they're low budget arson terrorism. They have no discretion whether they're hitting a military unit or a field or a school. Um, they're designed to cause more terror than destruction. Um, they're also kind of making do with what they have. Um, but the problem, too, is that they could inspire others. You know, every time there's a wildfire season, ISIS and Al Qaeda get all excited when they see what kind of destruction that the tactic. So. Great, great point. Amanda, last word. Sure, it seems to be uh, what's old is new again. So I think we've seen this before and uh, probably in another few years, we'll, we'll talk about it again because it'll, it'll rise its in, in peak. Yeah, it is kind of amazing. You know, you see this and you're like, that can't be a real tactic, can it? But but yeah, look back over time and, and it's really been, as all the panelists have said, it's really been an effective tactic and really good for propaganda campaigns as well. All right, next question. FBI, this is not a cyber show. We've got the cybersecurity evangelist that deals with that. But nonetheless, there are some ramifications for organizations across the board. FBI just recently came out and talked about uh, pain, uh, came out strong against paying uh, cyber criminals for ransomware. Uh, and I, I know I'm, you know, every time I see ransomware, I just think of that movie Ransom with Mel Gibson you know, several years ago where he screams, give me back my son. You know, okay, so sorry, side tangent there. But where do you stand on paying the ransom? I mean, you guys are all part of organizations that uh, could be targeted by ransomware. You know, there's a lot of different variables that go in there. Um, it's not always a black or white issue or simple yes or no. Joe, what, where do you come across on paying the ransom? Oh, this is so tough, right? You don't negotiate, but because you just encourage them to try more, bigger and better. But I do know uh, a firm that uh, uh, had their servers seized and they did a value uh, analysis to see, did it to get the information back, what costs more, what they had to pay or to rebuild uh, all their data. And they went with rebuilding their data, um, yeah. but it was, a, it was a tough, tough decision. So yeah, I, I, I don't know what to do. I, I hope I never am in this, in this position to have to decide that. They, <laughs> fair enough, Joe, I respect the response. Bridget. Um, I mean, the, the issue that you have is the same as why, you know, you have hostage that have languished in captivity with terror groups. You want yeah. to expect a rescue, but there are bad repercussions if you start setting the example that terror pays. Yeah, yeah, that's great. We've got a lot of examples of that, and and I encourage you. Bridget brings up a lot, calls a lot of these out. If you follow Bridget on her Twitter feed, um, she does call a lot of these type of situations out over time. And so, uh, Amanda, where, where do you come down on this one? Well, both both uh, Joe and Bridget gave uh, gave great answers. Uh, honestly, I'm still a fan of of not paying. Um, you know, I like the idea of either being able to you know prevent you know and back up your data, have that game plan well in advance. I think a lot of it comes down to planning, but definitely understand you you can't always prevent and stop something from happening. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely don't approve of giving money over to these criminal actors or these nation state groups either. You know, it really does come down to the simple planning and preparedness. And I know it's okay. It was, I, simple is not always the easy, the right word. But I mean, if you do the right things, if you're backing up your data on a regular basis and, and you're making sure that you're giving the training to your employees to know and spot suspicious things and not clicking on stupid stuff and, and, and so on and so forth, you can go a long way to making sure, like, you, like all of them said, that making sure you don't ever have to be confronted with this situation. Okay, so uh, question number three, any security trends that you're currently paying attention to right now? Anything that's of interest, uh, whether that's in the detection mode, whether that's in the, the prevention mode or, or threat tactics mode? Uh, Joe? Uh, yeah, evolution of de-escalation training. I'm seeing that in a lot of venues, uh, especially during COVID with masks covering most of your face. It was hard to talk about nonverbal cues. Uh, a lot of venues are ditching the masks, but I, I'm, I am seeing de-escalation is really um, coming front and center. Yeah, great point. That's great. Really on point uh, for that. And I know it's going to, you know, masks was masks uh, previously. 
now maybe vaccination cards and, and so on and so forth. So Bridget, any, any, any trends you're looking at? Um, encouraged by the greater focus on domestic extremism and on the international uh, terror front, I still can't believe anybody thinks the Taliban will keep a deal. I mean, good Lord. I mean, these, these, these guys are like still like, you know, releasing like their terror training camp videos, <laughs> things like that. So yeah, so uh, definitely not a laughing matter, but watch Afghanistan. Yeah, I just saw 60, uh, about um, one in six provinces in Afghanistan have now, since May, have been fallen under control of the Taliban. So a uh, little of your point there, uh, Bridget. Um, uh, Amanda, how about you? Uh, drones are a primary concern for uh, for us, both uh, not only the, the low-level flyer, you know, who is just trying to get a good picture, uh, but we've had a few incidents where it's actually crashed into objects, buildings, people, uh, all the way up to the nation state actor just sort of collecting. So, so drones are, are a big one. I think they're, they're much more uh, prevalent uh, and, uh, and anybody, anybody can use them. So they definitely pose a big security challenge for us. And we're looking to uh, how do we in the private sector sort of help uh, resolve that in-house. Yeah, we our resident drone expert, Travis, we, we need to have him back, bring him back into the podcast. But this is a, exactly, uh, it's another great point. Uh, there's a couple incidents in, I think in Mexico, where they had some uh, drones dropping explosive incidents or, or uh, different types of attacks there. But again, of course, there's always some venue issues uh, with drones. And I think it's going to continue to be uh, an emerging problem. So great, great input there. Hope everyone's taking some notes there. Uh, next question. Uh, as we're almost fully open across the country and number of vaccinations are increasing, even though if some people want to say they may be plateauing, uh, do we still need to worry? I mean, I know they, there's the Delta variant that's coming out there, but uh, are we protected? Uh, what do you think, Joe? Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm in the, I, I worry less a little more each day. Uh, COVID is deadly. It's highly contagious, all of those things, but whether vaccination, infection, natural immunity, uh, we're, we're going to get there and it will go the way of the other coronaviruses that we've been dealing with for years and years. And, you know, maybe it's annual booster, but I think every day uh, we get a little closer to it, it not being such a daily occurrence. I, I, I pray for the first day where we don't talk about COVID. Yeah, fair point. Fair point. Bridget. Yes, we do still need to worry because of the substantial number of anti-vaxxers and geographic pockets of low vaccinations that aren't likely to increase in many cases for political reasons. You combine that with the spread of variants and another winter coming and I'm vaccinated, but still wearing a mask and doing delivery. Oh, there you go. All right. Thanks, Bridget. Uh, Amanda. Um, sort of in, in the middle on that one. So not necessarily worried, but definitely a concern. I think that in any variant will sort of be on our horizon. But I think along with sort of what Bridget said, I'm more concerned about sort of that extra, you know, result of whether it's, you know, sort of an extremist view and a reaction to that. Uh, we do have some COVID vaccination uh, and testing sites. So definitely a security concern there. But honestly, I'm more uh, nervous about businesses shutting down. Uh, I think that was a very difficult uh, response to, to handle. And I think uh, we have a lot more problems because of those uh, business shutdowns and COVID itself. Yeah, I think it's all great points. There's, there's a lot of really, again, security is never um, so simple as a saying there's a right or wrong answer. There's, a, there's always the the additional variables that have to be considered. And I think you guys have all brought up really good points. Okay, so now kind of a little lighter one. Anything you guys are watching or reading uh, that, that might want to share with the, with the larger group? The, our, our nerdies out there, Joe? Unfortunately, I'm only reading EAPs at the moment because um, <laughs> that's, that's, Joe. it's the season. Yes, yeah, it's the season right now. Reopenings and outdoor events. I mean, I, that, that, that's probably true. So fair enough. Um, Bridget. Well, I mean, I can't say when I, you know, been getting over my Moderna shots that I never realized there were so many B-list documentaries on Prime Video about aliens and Bigfoot. And oh. I don't know why that they're all recommended for me too. They're like all on my recommended list. So I've been breezing through some of those and 
Maybe I have all the secrets now. I don't know. But. The, the algorithm has got you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How about you, Amanda? I actually just started reading a book called uh, Conquer Anything by Greg Stube. Uh, it's, a, it's a leadership book, but I think he sort of takes uh, an interesting perspective. Uh, I thought, oh, great, another leadership book from a, from a special operator. Great. What's it going to tell me? And uh, I had a chance to hear him talk and hear him highlight his points. And it's actually quite a unique perspective uh, with a very compassionate approach. Very good. Very good. I'll share two things. I, you know, I just finished a book. It's called AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley and the New World Order. Um, it's a it's a really good book about trying to understand, um, you know, from a Chinese perspective, how they view the theft of intellectual property, how they view competition um, and then what, you know, an AI world would look like, uh, the goods, the bads and, and some of the scary um, I found it to be interesting. I, you know, was not a particularly, it was an easy read, but I, I didn't necessarily agree with all the, um, the endpoints, but it was still fascinating to read. It's still a point of consideration. Uh, as for something I'm watching right now, I, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the Loki on the, I'm a Marvel nerd, I guess. Uh, and I just got done with mayor of Easttown, even though that was a, a month ago or so. Um, oh, that was pretty good. I watched that. That was a really good show. I, you know, my family's from Pennsylvania. And so it's kind of one of those things where I, I could relate to some of those areas. Um, but um, I'm kind of in between. I'm looking at, there's a show on HBO called Hacks. It's a 30 minute kind of comedy show. Maybe it's a dramedy uh, type of show. It's, it's quite good. I, I found it to be good. So that's kind of what I'm watching now. So I thought your answer was going to be a lot more Marvel. I'm just going to say. <laughs> for a second can you hear me can you guys hear me oh you're back yeah you're back uh, yeah what it, it, this is this happened to me last time too I, it drives me crazy my all of a sudden my airpods just all of a sudden took control of my speaker on my mac or whatever i i, I love apple but these are the side effects of it sometimes <laughs> so i'm gonna in fact i'm gonna leave this in because i'm so angry no <laughs> but um okay so thank you all for the rapid fire review um, and that'll effectively wrap it up. But I want to give everyone one last turn around the horn here and do uh, our part, uh, you know, our P2 parting shots or anything you'd like to plug. Joe. Uh, I would just like, I want to go back and say that um, I'm not uh, completely anti post action reports. Uh, there's, there's value in there. I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm frustrated that uh, some of the things we could have known about. Uh, yes. So uh, I think we all got you. Joe. We got you. And welcome, Amanda. I was, I was absolutely uh, loved hearing your point of view and uh, your perspective. So hopefully you'll join us again. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Th thanks, Joe. Bridget, anything you'd like to, any P2s, any promotion or plugging? Let's get Joe like a giant box of after action reports for the holiday. Just <laughs> <laughs> tie it with a big bow on the top. <laughs> um, so I want to plug, um, we will be coming back with some new um homeland security today law enforcement only training webinars soon and uh the focuses that we have this year are on different extremist movements and critical infrastructure sectors so look for those coming up awesome can't wait i mean you guys always do a great job with those so looking forward to that uh, amanda anything you'd like any parting shot promotion or plug uh, no, nothing really. Just uh, I just want to say thank you for, for having me. And it was great to hear uh, Joe and Bridget. Uh, you know, I definitely look forward to, to working with you guys and talk, hope we can all stay in touch. This will be great. Yeah, you definitely work your way into the uh, rotation here, Amanda. This is a really nice job, a new, newcomer coming in and, and joining our panel. So we really do appreciate it. I, I will do one plug as well um, in the next, probably in the month or so. If you're familiar, I've, I've written about this topic a lot, and it's been on Homeland Security today, thanks to Bridget, um, and I've you know pushed out in other venues. But the hostile events attack cycle is something that we've done a lot of uh, research on over the years, uh, and we're finally getting ready to push out a uh, white paper on it. It, it's, it gets a pretty good analysis and in-depth about each of the cycle, stages of the cycle and phases of the cycle. 
But this is what this is again the process where we feel threat actors follow, whether deliberately or or not. There's a process that they follow to carry out their activities, and and it's documented through you know the those affidavits or or reports, and we're able to capture that and, and put it out. Uh, for organizations to help plan and prepare. So uh, that should be coming out in the next month, we're hoping, knock on wood, uh, do that. Um, but with that, again, we are we are done. We want to thank you all for listening and, and we'll hope you'll continue to give all the Gate 15 podcasts a listen. Last week uh, was Jennifer Lynn Walker's The Cybersecurity Evangelist, where she wrapped up her uh, ISAC series, her Information Sharing and Analysis Organization uh, series. And then next week, Andy Jabor will head up his Gate 15 interview where he brings across um, individuals from across industries and talks about security challenges and issues as they may be uh, experienced. And then uh, that'll be next week. And then I'll join Jan, Jen and Andy uh, later this month at the Gate 15 roundtable. And, and you can find us on any of the major podcast platforms and always feel free to drop us a line at podcast at gate15.global. So with that, I want to again, thank all my uh, panelists today. You guys did a great job and I want to thank you, our listeners for listening today. And I hope you all have a great day. Uh, take care and stay safe. Thank you guys. Thank you.